So as Phil said earlier, and as I mentioned in the prayer, we are looking into the, the gospel according to Matthew. Gospel just simply meaning good news. And certainly, when we read about Jesus and his purpose in life in chapter 1, that he came to save his people from their sins, I mean, that ought to be for those aware of sin, to, for those of us that are aware of how we have fallen short of God's ideal for humanity, we say, oh, thank you, because that's what we needed. That should be good news, shouldn't it? But it's not received by everybody in the same way. And we see a contrast between Herod and the wise men, and we'll look at that in chapter 2. But the interesting thing is we go through the biography, as any good biography does, it lays out this person's life. And we're laying out the life of Jesus from his birth, who his family was, and, and now even into his toddler years. And we don't think about that as we read through the Word of God. We don't think about Jesus as a toddler. because And it wasn't Matthew's intent to give us the daily life of Jesus, mostly hitting the highlights that have to do with him being a king. That's Matthew's purpose, is to present Jesus as the king. So we don't read about, you know, did he go through the terrible twos? Did he flush stuff down the toilet, you know. I was just getting my mind wrapped around this idea. How many of you, just out of curiosity, currently are raising toddlers? All right, there's a full. How many of you have raised children that were at one time toddlers? Okay, how many of you can still remember those days? <laughs> I found this on the internet. This is a description for those of you looking for a diet. You've tried the Atkins diet or this diet or that diet. Uh, they present to us the toddler miracle diet, recognizing that toddlers seem to have lots of energy and are fairly trim. This was the suggestion that we, that we take our cues and clues from how toddlers eat, maybe to learn something from them. So day one of your toddler diet will begin with one scrambled egg, one piece of toast with grape jelly. Eat two bites of the egg using your fingers and dump the rest on the floor. Take one bite of toast, then smear the jelly on your face and clothes. Lunch, four crayons, any color, a handful of potato chips and a glass of milk. Take only three sips and then spill the rest. Dinner, a dry stick, two pennies and a nickel, four sips of flat Sprite. And for a bedtime snack, throw a piece of toast on the kitchen floor. Day two, breakfast. Pick up the stale toast from the kitchen floor and eat it. Drink a half bottle of vanilla extract or one vial of vegetable dye. Lunch. Half tube of pulsating pink lipstick and a handful of Purina dog chow, any flavor. <laughs> Afternoon snack, lick an all-day sucker until sticky, take outside, drop in dirt. Retrieve and continue slurping until it is clean again. Then bring inside and drop on rug. Dinner, a rock or an uncooked bean which should be thrust up your left nostril. Pour grape Kool-Aid over mashed potatoes and eat with a spoon. Day three, breakfast, two pancakes with plenty of syrup, eat one with fingers, rub in hair. Glass of milk, drink, drink half, stuff other pancake in glass. After breakfast, pick up yesterday's sucker from rug, lick off fuzz, put it on the cushion of the best chair in the house. Oh, one more. Uh, lunch, three matches peanut butter and jelly sandwich, spit several bites onto the floor, pour a glass of milk on table and slurp up. And I think you get the point, right? The toddler years. So we are in Jesus' toddler years, and we don't have anything from Matthew about him 
you know, going through the terrible twos. And I'm glad we don't because think about how we would look at our kids. If we knew how Jesus was as a three-year-old, we'd be, te- we'd be putting our kids on such guilt trips. Well, don't you see how Jesus was when he was three? I mean, he was perfectly potty trained at just the right time and, and on and on it would go. So I'm kind of glad that we don't have that information. It's not for us to know. But what is for us to know is that opening up your life as Mary did, Lord, behold the maidservant of the Lord. You know, here I am. Do to me according to your will. When it was, the offer was given to her to become pregnant with this child. And she said, let it be done to me. Okay, Lord, if that's what you want to do, I am willing to be used as a vessel. And as they did that, all of a sudden, their life of simplicity changed. Bringing Jesus into their lives made some things complicated that normally they would have not had to worry about. In chapter 2, we see them on the run. Yes, we think about the wise men bringing the gifts, frankincense and gold and myrrh. But we don't often think about in the Christmas story this next part where there's an attempt for their son to be assassinated, killed. And there is a mass murder of children because of him. And they have to flee, they have to move. From their home, as meager as it probably was, they were not a wealthy family, as simple as Joseph's carpenter shop. And and because of Jesus, they had to move. And we never hear them complain. Never hear Joseph say, man, this is a bad trip. Can we give him back, you know, this baby? I don't want to do this anymore. I imagine that they were willing to do whatever was necessary to keep him safe, just as you would do. Whatever was necessary to keep your children safe. So that's what chapter 2 is going to deal with. Let's, uh, we, we left off at verse 11 last time. I'm going to back up, read verse 9 uh, through to the end, and then we'll pick up there. Verse 9 says, When they heard the king, they departed. And this was King Herod, by the way, who was the reigning king of that area. So when they heard him, the wise men, uh, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child, nine times in this chapter Jesus is referred to as the young child, the toddler, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They presented those gifts to Jesus with Mary standing by watching. Now verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country, which would have been uh, probably Persia or Babylon. They went another way. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So that's the uh, rest of chapter 2, dealing with the young child Jesus. We see God warning. We see dreams recurring. We see Joseph responding. So let's start picking this apart. The, uh, the wise men had come from hundreds of miles away, traveled from the time they saw the star. They began their journey. And now that they arrived to Bethlehem to see the, this child king, he was born a king, he wasn't elected, like we elect a president, he was born into a uh, kingly family, chapter 1 talks about that, Uh, they show up on the scene, by this time Jesus is now a toddler, he's a year, between a year and two years old, so I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, if you really want your nativity scene to be accurate, on Christmas morning, you have to put the wise men like four blocks away. And then every day you have to go and move them a little bit, and move them, a little, and then a year by the next Christmas, you know, you finally have them there. So you have to work that out to make your nativity scene accurate. But verse 12 says, "Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, remember Herod had said, go find the baby, bring him back to me so that I can worship him.' Right? And Herod was lying." So they got the, the wise men uh, received a dream, which they were very used to, dreams and interpreting dreams. That's, uh, if you look back at, at the book of Daniel, you see that was one of the roles of these wise men. They were, they're, they're literally called magi, where we get the word magician. And so they were uh, into the astrological, the astronomical, dream interpretations, those types of things. So that's where God speaks to them in a dream, and he says, don't return to Herod. And they listened. They didn't. They departed for their own country, and they took a different route. They took a detour. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Where? In a dream. Saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, and says, look, there's a problem, Joseph. There's, there's danger, and you're going to have to do something to avoid this danger. So we see the wise men are warned. Now Joseph is warned. And I just wanted to hang on that for a minute because we talk about God and his word and, and just all the blessings of his word and blessings from God, and, but sometimes it's those warnings that really get us, isn't it? Like there's something going on, there's a circumstance or a situation, and God says, I need to warn you. Or a friend says, I need to warn you about that. How do we deal with warnings? What are warnings? I simply wrote this. This is a definition. A warning is to give notice, advice, or intimation to a person or a group of danger, impending evil, possible harm, or anything else unfavorable. I mean, we're used to warnings, aren't we? 
We have just winter weather warnings or advisories. We have warning labels. Some of them are really silly if you get into looking at warning labels. My car has a little warning light in it. I read this, one Arkansas farmer discourages trespassers by giving this warning, please do not trample the poison ivy or feed the bull. Another one in a physics laboratory said, don't look into laser beam with remaining eye. <laughs> They're warnings. Matter of fact, this is crazy. I was talking with Brad the other day. I don't know how many of you guys are looking at the news. But there's some crazy stuff happening around the world. You've been seeing that? Uh, this is uh, dead birds found in Kentucky, Sweden, as crabs wash up on UK shores. Let me just read a little bit of this to you. Doomsday believers got more signs of the apocalypse on Wednesday as, mass, as reports of mass animal deaths continued to emerge around the world. Hundreds of dead birds were found on the streets in uh, Murray, Kentucky, officials announced Wednesday, marking the second time this week that the state has made such a discovery. Earlier in the week, several dozen dead birds were found in Gilbertsville, Kentucky. Uh, this goes on and on, and, and we read also, Sweden reported discovering 50 dead jackdaw birds on the street in Stockholm, while 40,000 dead crabs washed up on beaches in England. There, these reports came on the heels of a string of mass animal deaths uh, from Arkansas, Maryland, Brazil, New Zealand, which have caused many to joke or speculate that the world is on the verge of the apocalypse. Uh, Italy is added to the group as well. Uh, let me see if I can find that article. I won't read, read it to you in its entirety. But, uh, oh, here it is. Over a thousand dead birds in Italy mystify authorities in wake of worldwide animal die-offs. Uh, again, it goes through the same thing. And as I began to research this, you know, the, I'm not saying that, you know, the world is coming to an end today, but we read our Bibles. And we see that there will come a day that these things do indicate that the Lord is coming back. And when others are saying peace and safety, the Apostle Paul says, pay attention, get ready, because the Lord is coming back. And so, you know, the population of the world is increasing. What's going to happen when there's 7 billion people on the planet? We know the whole creation is groaning waiting. And we see even here in these news articles, I don't know what all this means. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to interpret this for you or anything like that. But what I'm saying is the creation, the creation is groaning, folks, waiting for the redemption of the whole earth. And we look at warnings in the Bible. You know, because the Bible is full of great blessings, full of great instruction, but it's also full of warnings. Where do we see warnings? Lot was warned to flee Sodom and Gomorrah. Noah was warned about the flood that was coming. Jesus warned a man that he had healed. He said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So how does God warn us? How does God, I mean, does God still warn you and I today? Are there still warnings that need to be listened to? Absolutely. Absolutely. One way God warns us is in his word. Psalm 119 says this, the law or the word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. 
sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. So all, the law, the word of God for all these things. And it's better, the word of God is better, the psalmist says, than, than even gold. And it's sweeter than honey. And then verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So that's the word of God provides for us a warning. Sometimes friends provide for you and for I a warning. Hey, Steve, be careful doing that thing. That, that's dangerous. You're, you're playing with fire. You're messing in an area you shouldn't be. The Bible tells you and I that we as Christians having the word of God are competent to counsel one another. If we see a friend or a fellow brother or sister overtaken in a fault, struggling against sin, we can go to them and give them a warning in love. Please, please. Now, now do your warnings in love, you know, not like this prophetic, let's say it, the Lord, you're going down, you know, kind of thing. But, hey, I'm just worried about you. I don't want to see you get messed up in this thing. And so sometimes we get warnings from a friend. Preachers, preachers in this day and age provide warnings for people. Ezekiel 3 and, and 33, both of those chapters discuss warning people about lifestyles that are sinful and leading to destruction. You and I can have that place with people we work with. Hey, you know, that way of living is, is not going to lead you to blessing and benefit. You, you can't... God has certain spiritual laws that just operate, the laws of reaping and sowing and so forth. And you can try... To think that, well, I'm the one that's going to be able to, to get away with God's laws are somehow going to apply not to me. I'm going to be able to do these things that God says are going to bring harm to my life and somehow be able to avoid that harm. But it, it just won't work. And so we warn people, man, get right with God. Get your life lined up with God. Parents, parents, you guys can warn your children. And again, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4 as he writes some warnings to the Corinthian church. He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Kids, parents, I don't, it's not that we want to shame our kids or make them feel bad about themselves, but you know what? We don't do our job if we don't warn our kids out of love. Again, all this being the context of a loving relationship with them. Not just being the parent that's always saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't go there and you get none of my attention, but I'm just going to warn you about everything. But warnings still are part of being a parent. So my question to this group this morning is, where have you been dabbling that God needs to come to you and give you a warning? It's, you already know it. Your conscience maybe has already been warning you. That there's an area you're messing with, there's a thing you're involved in, and it's dangerous to you, and you know it's trouble. But you're playing with it. And, and here you are. Maybe this morning God is just saying to you, I'm warning you again. I'm using this pastor to just warn you about, about that thing. And we'll see what we do with warnings in just a minute. But maybe God is warning some of you. But not everybody heeds warnings, do they? Sometimes we hear warnings and we go, ah, pff, ah it's never going to happen. Not me, because we feel immortal. That'll never happen to me. Or, or uh, I don't think that that's true. I don't know that I trust that. We can have this false sense of security. I, I like this, by faith, Hebrews 11, by faith, listen to that, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Why did Noah obey? Why did Noah 
heed the warning? Because he believed, because it was by faith. It was by faith. That's how we heed the warnings in the Bible. Because we don't know for sure. We have no proof that what God says is going to happen will actually happen, do we? But we base it on, we heed the warnings. Why? Because we know who God is. He's been faithful in the past, and we trust he's going to be faithful in the, in the future. So when he says, knock, 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 hey, Steve, be careful there, I say, okay, I trust you. At least I try to. We, we sometimes don't make it there, but when they had departed, the angel came to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. There was something Joseph was going to have to do. He was going to have to respond. God wasn't going to get up and grab Joseph and his family and carry him to Egypt. He was going to have to go, make the decision to heed the warning and go. There's a warning. Take your pill. Take your pill. Look, we don't want anybody else to direct our lives, do we? We like to direct our own lives. I'm in charge. I'm large and in charge. Don't tell me what to do. And God steps in. He says, hey, I'm giving you a warning. I'm just telling you, this is dangerous because I love you and I don't want to see you get hurt. I don't want to see you fall into the pit. So I'm going to tell you a warning. There's a pit there. But you say, well, who, who is God to tell me what to do or how to live? I'm going to direct my own life. Any of you like that? You know, you're self-directed. Say, I'm not going to take in. I'm, I'm smart enough to make my own choices. Well, are you really? <laughs> Should we look at your past? Should we look at all those great decisions you've made in the past that turned out not to work out the way you thought they were going to work out? I like this. Max Licato wrote this. In U.S. Naval uh, Institute, Proceedings, the magazine of the Naval Institute, Frank uh, Cook illustrates the importance of obeying uh, the laws of the lighthouse. Two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, light bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send. I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send, I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. We changed course. <laughs> and that's what you say. You say, I'm the captain of my destiny. I'm in charge of my ship. You all change course. You and God says, hey, I'm a lighthouse. You change course. Because otherwise you're going to get into a wreck. And Joseph, did he do it? Yeah, he took the advice. And what was the advice? He had to flee. He had to flee. Sometimes, you know, maybe when you're growing up, you're taught that courage means always to just stand your ground. That it's, it's wimpy to retreat. It's wimpy to flee. 
Anybody like that? I'm going to stay. Some of you will hold, will stand on and, and go down with a sinking ship because your pride. Yeah, I'm going to stay with this. I'm going to stick it out. I'm, I'm not going to give my life to Christ because I'm my own man, and I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to hold on to that. And you're just stuck there because you're so proud. Joseph said, I'm not too proud to have my life directed by God. And he fled. And in the Bible, there are maybe that thing that God is warning you about. Maybe this is the very answer you've been waiting for. The answer for you is to flee. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee idolatry. Now, idolatry, we don't have statues in our house, Pastor. Well, listen, idolatry is simply uh, worship of a God of our own making. Worshiping a God of our own making. They had uh, gods that they worshipped back in those days. They would make, take a piece of wood and they'd cut it in half, and half they'd throw in the fire and use to keep warm, and the other half they'd carve into a little statue, and then they'd worship that thing. They would make their own God how they wanted to. They would make him look like they wanted to. They would make him as tall or as thin or fat or narrow or whatever. They'd make their own God. And then they'd worship that God. Look, we're no different today. Idolatry still exists. We, we can't tell Jesus who we want him to be. It's, Jesus is not supposed to worship us. We're supposed to worship him. And he is who he is. God is who he is. We can't change that. Because we look around and say, well, I like this about God, but I don't really like that. And I like this about Buddhism, and I like a little bit of that Hinduism, so I'm going to kind of mix this all together, and boom, out came a golden calf. Like Aaron, or out comes an idol, a god of our own making. Look, folks, God is good. He's perfect. He's holy. That means he's different than every other god that, that could be worshipped. He's different than you and I. So idolatry is just simply saying, well, I like the Bible says this, and I like that, but I don't, when the Bible says this, I don't like that. I don't want to worship a God who, who does that. And so we can make, we, so we, it says flee idolatry. Don't do that. Learn about who I am. Worship me for who I am. That's the heart of worship is worthiness. God is worthy. Jesus is worthy. That's why we worship him. And when you investigate him, when you understand him, you will agree. Who needs an idol? Who needs a false system of religion? Who needs some false? We're reading about the historical Jesus Christ put right into the face of history because he was real. God in human flesh coming down to minister to me and you to save us from our sins. And we have the warning. Flee idolatry. 1 Timothy 6. Flee these things. He says to, Paul says to Timothy, well, what are these things? It's in the context of greed, love for money. Flee those, flee love for money. How do you flee love for money? You just start giving it away. Give it away. Keep what you need. Give the rest away. Flee from greed. And 2 Timothy 2.22, for the youth, flee youthful lusts. There are some things that are lusts that are specific to youthfulness that we figure out when we get older wasn't so good after all. And, you know, these youthful lusts, the things that they desire, alcoholic experiences and drug-induced experiences and, 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 and vandalism and things that, that sometimes the youth think are cool or neat, he says, flee from those things. So sometimes the answer is to flee. And that was the answer for Joseph and for me and for you. 
Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, verse 14, he took the young child and his mother by night. Interesting that, that God has to say to Joseph, take the young child and his mother, like Joseph was going to leave Mary behind or something. You know, come on, Mary, we've got to go. You're taking too long. I could just, it just seems that God, take Joseph, take, take Jesus and Mary with you. You've got to take her too. You know, you can't leave her behind because she's still fixing her hair or picking out her outfit or finding shoes that match or something like that. I don't know. So he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I will call, or I called my son. So again, fulfillment of the word of God in these things. So Herod dies and when, or he's going to stay there till, they're going to stay there till Herod dies. Herod was, well, look at verse 16. Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the wise men. So again, Herod figured out from the wise men about how old this child would be at this point. He's somewhere between a year and two years old. So to make sure, to make certain, because Herod doesn't want a challenge from any other king. So he is going to do the unthinkable. He is going to kill all of this. The male children. He's not worried about the young girls. It's just the threat to his throne. He was a paranoid maniac. Herod was. He was a nutcase. And so he imagine that. How many of you again have toddlers right now? How many of you raising toddlers? I mean, just imagine that. Imagine in Palmyra, the president issues a decree for all of the male children put to death. There would be weeping and crying, just like that out there that you're all listening to right now. <laughs> I love when God provides practical illustrations. Weeping and crying, and all the kids are inspired now to weep and cry. But notice what's interesting to me before we move on. Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, wait a second, Herod, wait a second, Herod, hadn't you deceived the wise men yourself? Just a few verses ago? Well, yeah, I did, but, but that was different. This is me we're talking about now. And, and sometimes we're like that, aren't we? We do and treat people in a way sometimes in our very household that we work with. We treat people in a way that we ourselves would never want to be treated. We don't mind lying about a thing, but then when we find out that someone has lied to us, we get all flustered and up in arms. Well, who are they? they shouldn't lie to me like that. Well, wait a second. You don't have a problem with lying when it suits your needs. Or maybe it's gossip. You don't have a problem talking about somebody else. But when you find out someone's been talking about you, how's that make you feel? Get pretty upset, pretty angry, right? And so we see Herod getting a taste of his own medicine, and he don't like it. He was very angry. So again, I come back to just the simplicity of the Word of God. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Herod didn't do that. He did not treat others like he wanted to be treated. He treated others like he wanted to treat them, but then expected others to treat him differently. Folks, it is just a huge, simple, what if the whole world lived by the golden rule? What if the whole world just decided today, we're all, 
worldwide going to live by the golden rule. We're all going to do to others. We're going to treat others the same way we would want to be treated ourselves. How would that change the world? Just that one Throw away the rest of the Bible if you want. You know, and just try living by that one verse. It'll change your life. It'll change your family. It'll change your neighborhood. If you see your neighbor Scott leaves on your yard or, or on his yard, maybe, unless he has blown them over to your yard or something, but if you see a neighbor that's in need, you say, you know what? If I was in need, wouldn't I want someone to help me? And then so that spurs you on to go and to help them to do to someone else the very thing that you've sat back and hoped that someone would do for you and said, well, no one in, you know, we deal with this in church, don't we? You come here and say, well, no one pays any attention to me in church. No one greeted me in church today. Well, did you greet anybody? You see how that works? We look at it from our standpoint, and it's kind of comical when we think about it, you know. Well, you, no one's doing this for me. Well, who have you done that for? The golden rule. Herod, he's angry because he was deceived and, and so that his, his throne or his, his kingship is not challenged, he puts to death. He thinks he can wipe Jesus out. He doesn't want to deal with Jesus. He doesn't want any threat by Jesus. Like Joseph and the wise men whose lives are being directed by God, he says, I don't want anybody, to, I'm the king, and I don't want God to, to, get, to mess with my life. And so he figures, I'm just going to, put, I'm going to do away with him. Loved or hated, but never ignored. You might love Jesus, you might hate Jesus, and I hope that here nobody is in that category, but you can't ignore him. He is a reality of history, and you can't pretend he was never born or never existed. He is Jesus Christ, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can choose to believe it or not believe it, but you can't ignore it. So then, verse 17, was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew reaches back to scriptures that the Jews would be very familiar with. Jeremiah 31, the situation was the deportation of the Jews into captivity by either the Assyrians or Babylonians. Uh, they're not Scholars aren't certain which Jeremiah is referring to in this passage. But the, the Jews were being taken captive. They'd been, they had been conquered and were being led captive into another country. And so just like during the Holocaust, you can imagine uh, parents being separated from children, weeping and moaning and sadness. But the next verse there in Jeremiah is a verse of hope. Jeremiah 31.15 is what we read here. Jeremiah 31.17 says, but there is hope in your future. And I think that's why Matthew quotes this. Because although right now there is weeping and crying as these children are put to death in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem, that there is that the, the Savior is, is safe. And there is a future hope. Because what happens in the next verse? Herod dies. That nasty governor, that terrible leader, he doesn't last forever nor will the leaders you've been upset with, nor will the leadership that you're currently complaining about in this world. They won't last forever, but the kingdom of God is the eternal one, is eternal. So verse 19, when Herod was dead, by the way, interesting note about Herod's death. I know you just went back down, and now you've got to look back at me again. Sorry about that. When Herod was dead, 
just before he died, about 4 B.C., Josephus stated that Herod was so concerned, just to give you an insight, was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come to Jericho, and he gave order that they should be killed at the time of his death so that displays of grief that he craved would take place. Isn't that unbelievable? That's the, when you read about Herod the Great in the Bible, this is the kind of fruit loop that he was. Nobody's going to miss me, but to make sure people grieve when I die, a thousand other men are going to be put to death, or a hundred other men, or whatever it was that, that he had put aside, and the people are going to mourn them so they'll be mourning as if they were mourning on the day of my death. That comes from church history, not from biblical history, but it just gives you an interesting insight into Herod the Great. So he dies, and in a dream, uh, the Lord appears to Joseph. J Joseph must have slept a lot, is all I can figure, because God is constantly talking to him in his dreams. He says, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, again, a historical marker, Archelaus was one of the sons of Herod the Great, another nasty ruler. By the way, Herod Archelaus ruled so badly that the Jews and Samaritans, uh, Samarians unitedly appealed to Rome to request that he should be deposed. So he was a terrible ruler. So when they hear that Archelaus is reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, that's like out of the frying pan into the fire, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, again, another warning from God for their safety, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, again, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So that's how we get Jesus from Bethlehem via Egypt. I mean, look back on your own life. Just as we, as we close out, I'm going to end a little bit earlier than normal today, which is great. Uh, praise the Lord for that, for I'm sure you're saying in your minds. But just do this. Before you check out mentally, just think about this. You say, I don't want a God-directed life. I want to just direct my own life. I want to make my choices. Meanwhile, the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will do what? He'll direct your path. God wants to, God's promising to direct your path when you allow Him and when you acknowledge Him in the way that you live. But we say, I want to direct my own life, and we make certain choices that lead us in a bad direction. We make choices to react or act or answer or, or behave in certain ways. And I just look back on my life, and here's one of the things I'm so thankful that even in my disobedience at times, God has even used that for good in my life. He's brought it, he's used those things to bring it about as it is to this day. Here I am. Look, as I read through this chapter, the thing that I have learned to love in my life more than almost anything else, I mean, there's, I love the love of God, I love the mercy of God, I love the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. I've spoken to many of you about that because you worry about decisions. You know, in some decisions, there's not a right or a wrong. You know, I remember when Warren and his family were moving to Arizona. Is that God's will for my life? I don't know. We didn't know. Remember laboring over that, Warren? Should I go to Arizona? Should I stay here? You know, but God's will is that in Arizona or in Palmyra that you acknowledge him in all your ways. And how God took 
Warren, he's saying, I think God is leading me here, takes him out to Arizona a few years later, brings him back with a a renewed desire for evangelism. And he spreads that here to our fellowship. Well, was it wrong that he went to Arizona? Should he not have gone in the first place because he came back anyway? I don't know. I don't know. But when God is directing your life and you're acknowledging him in all your ways, you can trust that even your mistakes, he'll turn into blessings for you. Romans 8.28. He works all things together for good. And somehow, as I make my decisions in life, as I acknowledge God and I, and I try to see what he wants me to do in terms of sin, no sin in my life, you know, trying to avoid those things that he says to avoid, trying to follow his example, I just trust that, man, look at the way he's led me in my life the last 15, 16 years. I had no idea where I would be. Jesus going from being born in Bethlehem and then through a threat on his life, his family goes to Egypt. Well, that was unexpected, although it was, you know, how does the Messiah come out of Egypt when Jesus is born in Bethlehem? Well, this is how it happens. He goes down to Egypt here, and then when Herod dies, he comes back up. But wait, he's not Jesus of Bethlehem. He's Jesus of Nazareth. How did that happen? Well, Archelaus was ruling, and so they went to, and you see how the whole string of events just plays out in your life. And you look back and you go, wow. I never thought it would happen that way. I never thought it would come about that way. But there is this acknowledgement, this understanding that behind all of my decisions, God is sovereign. And I can rest in that. I do rest in that. When I'm, when I'm the captain of my ship, I worry. Because I know me. Because sometimes I can make some pretty, pretty dumb choices. So I have in my life become dependent, not codependent. I'm just flat out dependent. You know, there's no co about it. It's not me and Jesus working together. It's Jesus having the preeminence. And I pray that one thing you guys would get is we've talked about warnings and we've talked about you know uh, the, the 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 ways that God uh, asks us maybe to flee from things, to flee from sin in our lives. Just get a hold and pray about understanding for your life the sovereignty of God. What it means that God is sovereign. That he is directing the course of events in the world and in our lives. That while it seems like we're making decisions that behind that God is at work. There's so much comfort in that. You can rest. You can pray. Make your choice. Read the word of God. And then you can relax and trust that God is working it out for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just personally thank you for your, your goodness and your sovereignty in my life. Lord, I would have never charted this course for my life. Matter of fact, I was on a much more destructive course. But Lord, you stepped in. You showed yourself to me. You called me to be your own, Lord. And I pray that like Lot's wife, I would, I would never look back. That I would never look back. Lord, I thank God that, that Jesus Christ has been birthed in our hearts. That the seed was planted. That, that as Paul said, he labored until Christ was planted. The seed Christ, Christ was conceived in us. And that his life born through our lives. And Lord... All the the challenge, all the struggle has been worth it. Every minute of it.
And Lord, we just acknowledge you. Uh, we stand with the wise men. We stand with Joseph. We open up our treasures to you, Lord, and we ask you to direct our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll.